0: Welcome to the Tell Us Something Podcast, I'm Mark Moss. In this week's podcast, you'll learn about a young man's exploration of his family's ancestry. You'll hear about a young woman's struggle to keep her young daughter safe while writing and promoting her first book and memoir and surviving domestic abuse at home. You'll descend into addiction and come out on the other side before finally making friends with a person with whom you once vehemently disagreed. The next live Telesumming event is November 8th in Butte, Montana. The theme is work. Tickets are on sale now at teleslimming.org slash events. We are taking story pitches for the December Telesumming Live event. The theme in December is, Did That Really Happen? If you'd like to pitch your story, please call 406-203-4683. Our podcast today was recorded in front of a live audience on October 2nd, 2018, to a sold-out crowd at the Wilma in Missoula, Montana. Eight storytellers shared their true personal story on the theme, It's Complicated. Today, we hear from four of those storytellers. Our first story comes to us from Chris Latre, whose father wants nothing to do with his Native American heritage. As Chris becomes an adult, he begins exploring this heritage, seeking understanding of who he is and where he comes from. Chris calls his story, How's it going, Chief? So there's a story in, uh,
1: in my family about my father. This is late 60s, early 70s. I'm not sure what year. Out at the mill in Frenchtown. He's fresh out of the Navy, a few years. And he's leaning on a rail in the mill proper. The guy walks up to him. It's kind of an apocryphal story, so you don't necessarily know what's true and what isn't. But when my dad would tell me, it's his foreman. He walks up on me, slaps him on the back, and he says, how's it going, chief? Which for my dad was the only match you needed to light for the gasoline of rage that fueled him. And he chased this guy from one end of the mill to the other before he finally caught him. And when my dad would tell me the story, he said, I grabbed that son of a bitch by the throat and I said, don't you ever fucking talk to me again. And he swears that he never did. And I've heard that story from my dad. I heard it from my sister who worked there for a while. I heard it from a couple other people. The reason my dad was so angry is he was Indian and he hated the fact that he was Indian. And calling an Indian chief is something like calling an Indian squaw or naming a football team Redskins. You don't know what it means unless you live it. And my dad lived it. And to wonder how and why he felt that way, you have to kind of do a certain amount of speculation because he never talked about it until the day he died. And and as Mark announced, you know, I am enrolled with the Little Shell tribe of Montana. And when my dad died on October 30th, 2014, I don't know if he ever even heard of the Little Shell tribe. It's only through investigation of my own that I've learned our family lineage. And if he knew it, he never talked about it. My grandparents would talk about it, that we were Indians. They said we were Chippewa, but when they died, I don't necessarily know if they knew about the Little Shell. So who are the Little Shell? Well, the Little Shell tribe is named after a specific band led by a chief named Little Shell who broke away as a result of the 1892 McCumber Commission, so... We are a people, a part of the larger Pembina tribe of Indians that live kind of in the, what we would call the upper Midwest, the Great Lakes, Canada. Uh, we're talking the Anishinaabe, Ojibwa, Chippewa. My, you know, like a horse or a dog, I have papers. My papers say I'm Chippewa Cree, Chippewa Cree Métis. But the Little Shell in 1892, the McCumber Commission, they came to that part of the country and saw all this land that the Indians had, and they said, We want it. We're going to pay you fair market value, which was like a dollar an acre. And the result of that was the creation of the Turtle Mountain Reservation in North Dakota. Little Shell said, Nah, we're not interested. And the Fed said, well, if you guys don't sign on to this and go on the reservation, we're gonna say that you essentially don't exist, which is true. We're a not federally recognized tribe. Little Shell said, you know what? We don't recognize your borders. We don't recognize your laws. So we're just not gonna play. We don't care what you say about our existence because we know who we are. Which to me, I love the fact that part of my lineage goes all the way back to just a big fuck you to the man. And I wish my dad knew about that. So I try and understand, well, you know, the downside of that is that my grandparents' generation could be deported to Canada as Métis people. So they didn't want people to know they were Indian. Think about, we're only a couple generations removed from native children being removed from their families so that they didn't learn their language and and sent to these boarding schools. I don't know my language which is not a surprise because I didn't know up until about a decade ago who I was. So you can understand why people like like, like my father and and the generation before him would try and keep it on the down low exactly what and and where they came from. But we don't have a reservation. We don't have, we have small concentrated communities in towns like Great Falls and and Lewistown and, and places like that. But, you know, my dad never talked about it and I like to think about what it was like for him growing up in the 50s in towns like Anaconda and Hamilton and what it was like with no community to be a part of, you know, being called, you know, Indian or half-breed, which is what, you know, the derogatory term for what the Métis people are, or prairie nigger, things like that. What was it like to grow up that way with nobody to back you up? And your father is an alcoholic and he beats you who would own that you were Indian? You know, who is your community at that point? Your community becomes your rage and your ability to fight. And that's what my dad learned. He learned to drink probably by the time he was 13. The only thing that saved him was the Navy. And he came out of the Navy reinventing himself as someone who would only claim to be white. My grandparents would talk about us being Chippewa and he would say, oh, that's bullshit. So you understand why, as a racist, probably the people he hated the most were Indians. And I grew up wondering who we are and where we came from. But at the same time, you know, I've learned some of that rage for different reasons. You know, I was, I learned my rage because everybody made fun of me for being fat. I don't recall being, you know, uh, hassled about being Indian, but it could have happened. People made comments here and there. So none of this sounds particularly complicated to me. I mean, it's easy for me to look at the colonial nature of the United States and be full of rage at times. And I don't let it get to the best of me. You know, I have my coping mechanisms. I meditate. I practice yoga. I walk in the woods I try and be this earthy dude (laughs) with greater levels of success from time to time. What's complicated about it is that I'm as white as any white person in this room as well. And that comes from my mother's family. And the fact that I don't drink and that I have a greater capacity to love than fight. You know, the kind of advice my dad would give me was, you know, if you ever get in a fight with somebody, you got to hurt them. You got to hurt them so bad that they know never to fuck with you again. Well, I've fortunately never been in a fight in my life, and I intend to keep it that way. And I credit, I credit the fact that my mother has been the largest influence in my life, and her mother. You know, I didn't know my maternal grand or my paternal grandparents hardly at all, but my maternal grandmother was a big part of my life. You know, she was a big sports fan. When Ted Turner created the Superstation, we used to watch Atlanta Braves baseball. She uh, took me to Grizzly basketball games. I remember one time. This is the '70s. Michael Ray Richardson. Does anybody here remember Michael Ray Richardson? He was a legitimate NBA superstar coming out of the Montana Grizzlies basketball program until he got a little caught up in drugs and got kicked out of the league and had to go to Europe. But <laughs> my grandmother, and I have this vivid memory of them playing Gonzaga and, and Sugar Ray Richardson lights them up for 40 points. And the, every time a foul gets called on the Grizzlies, the Grizz fans are like, bullshit, bullshit. And my grandma's over there just, oh, because oh, that's how she was. You know, she loves stuff like that, but I, I have another vivid memory of my grandmother walking into her kitchen wearing a T-shirt that I was so proud of. I was a huge Kiss fan. And, the, and Paul Stanley with a solo album picture that's purple. And Paul Stanley, like, hey, mom. We, she didn't want us to call her grandma. We called her mom. Mom, look at my shirt. And she's like, oh, honey. Oh, honey. So that was my grandma. And my mom is probably here tonight. She's been, you know, when my rock band used to play in Seattle, she would drive over to watch us play. She comes to everything I do. She's been my biggest fan. So that's the complicated part. Yeah, give it up for my mom. Thank you. Thank you. That's the complicated part. I'm every bit as much a white European, Czech Dane as I am, a raging Indian who wants to like drive everybody off the continent. And that's the complicated part of what we're trying to face in the world and this country in particular at large is how the hell do we get along with each other when we can hardly get along with ourselves? So, you know, I I mean, this isn't a story with like an arc and a big kicker funny ending, but I feel like if I can just deal with all my raging bullshit, and still show up for work on time to be nice to people and, and yeah, if I can do it, you can do it. So thank
0: you. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. Chris Latre is a writer, a walker and a photographer. His freelance writing and photography has appeared in various regional and national publications. His first book one Sentence Journal, short poems and essays from the world at large, was recently released via Riverfeet Press. Chris is Chippewa Cree Matisse and is an enrolled member of the Little Shell tribe of Chippewa Indians. Follow Chris at chrislatray.com. Order his book at factandfictionbooks.com one-sentence-journal. Or just drop into Fact and Fiction and get it yourself right there live in person. Our next story comes to us from Stephanie Land, who does the best she can as she navigates escaping and surviving domestic violence while keeping her young daughters safe and writing and promoting her first book and memoir. She calls her story, Setting the Missing Piece Down. A warning for our more sensitive listeners, Stephanie's story features frank language about domestic violence.
2: My youngest daughter's favorite book lately has been Shel Silverstein's The Missing Piece. We read it in my bed at night and then she asks me, can I please have your arm? And I stretch it out for her to use as a pillow. Then she usually asks me to be covered by a blanket and I lie there and wait for her body to start twitching for her to make that final sigh before I can get up and go into my kitchen pour myself a glass of wine if I have some, and stare at the floor. When I, uh, when I told my husband to move out last spring, Coraline was about to turn four, and she started sleeping with me again at night. For those first couple of months, she would wake up in the middle of the night crying, asking why her mom and dad weren't there at the same time anymore. I never really knew what to tell her, And then she would ask me, but don't you miss him? And I would just say, sometimes, even though that's not true, I have never, not even once, missed him. He hasn't lived with us for about five months now, and all I have to do is imagine him walking from one room to the next, and my body begins to show the signs of a panic attack. My friends have been really supportive throughout this whole divorce process, and a few of them have offered me some comforting words, telling me that they're sure that there is a man out there for me, one who will appreciate me and all that I have to offer, and I kind of chuckle at this, and I am tempted to say to them, why on earth would I want that? But that kind of thinking goes against the canon of almost every single story that we're told. I've watched my daughters take in the lasting kiss before the final end credits of so many movies, and I cringe at almost everyone. Except my oldest daughter and I, Mia, have taken to watching some of my favorite movies from the 80s when we're traveling alone together. And uh, at the end of the summer, we were having dinner and, I was quiet for a little bit, and then I started blurting out some kind of weird questions, like, uh, what if Andy stayed with Ducky at the prom and didn't go out to chase Blaine into the parking lot? What if, what if Johnny Castle didn't come back to do the final dance number and just moved on and opened up a dance studio, and then we saw Baby join the Peace Corps? <laughs> So my my daughter's 11 and she has a writer for a mother and she's used to these weird outbursts and she uh, sat there and chewed her cheese quesadilla thoughtfully and then she said, uh, but it wouldn't be a story if it ended like that. And I said, what do you mean? Like it wouldn't be complete? And she said, yeah, it's only a real story if people fall in love in the end. That's how you know that they're gonna live happily ever after. So over the last year and a half, when people asked me about my happily ever after and what it was like to be a newlywed, I wasn't really sure what to tell them. Because three months after we were married, I'd called the police and they'd come to my apartment and taken pictures of bruises on my neck. The police left that night just a little bit after midnight My husband was already down at the station and the dog was still completely losing her mind. And I stood in my kitchen leaning against the counter, staring down at brochures and illustrated flyers on my table demonstrating signs to watch for after experiencing strangulation. We were alone for several months after that me and Coraline and me. Meanwhile, my husband told me that uh, he would commit suicide if he was convicted of the felony or had to go back to jail. But most importantly, he made it feel like, he made me feel like it was my fault that he had to hurt me. So I, I decided to advocate for him and for his charges to be lessened to a misdemeanor. I, uh, I arranged meetings I met with lawyers and prosecutors. I wrote statements and so many emails. I even stood in front of the judge and begged him to allow my husband to move back in with us so that we could go on being a family again. When the judge granted this, it had only been four months since my husband had strangled me and he said because of that it was against his own better judgment. I wish that I would have or could have said that it was against mine too. But the fog of the situation was so dense that I'd completely lost sight of my compass. I think maybe my desire as a single mom for that happy ending was like a rushing current that was too strong for me to fight. I knew that I had chosen a path, though I wouldn't have admitted it then, that was full of emotional landmines. I also knew that in walking that path, one of those landmines would detonate, only this time, possibly with my death. When I, uh, when I started posting on Facebook this summer that I was single again, uh, a few local women uh, reached out to me and they sent me kind of similar messages saying, I was so worried about you and it reminded me that there had been a newspaper article with my husband's mugshot as the main photo and that i watched people share that on facebook for several days it made the lie that i'd been living parading us all over town and social media as this loving couple for the last year feel like a some kind of wound that had opened up all over again i hated it that i had done that that i'd hidden what he had done to me as much as possible. I ran from that article. I even emailed the editor of the newspaper, begging her to take it offline from their online archives. I isolated myself from my community. I didn't talk to close friends about what was going on or what had happened or about the emotional abuse that was happening at home. Because admission would require action so I didn't really talk to anybody. My whole life felt like a lie, but I was really good at telling the story, especially to me. So a few weeks before I uh, told him to move out, we were all in the backyard together and playing catch. It was one of those days where it's just warm enough where you think winter's behind you, and I also felt like maybe the misery of winter was over and his court case was done. He'd just adopted my youngest, Coraline, and we were all so happy and Mia turned to me and she said, you really know how to pick the good ones, mom. She was talking about her stepdad, a man that she had watched hurt me twice in one evening. I looked at her and I smiled And then I looked over at him and I went inside to cry. Over the last several months, I've kind of been asking myself what my motivation was in keeping our life on the outside as normal as possible. And I think I maybe didn't want to disappoint anyone. I didn't want to let all of those people who were so happy for me down. Then I realized that I was included in that group. So, In the book, The Missing Piece, the reader follows this really simply drawn line throughout all of the pages. And on this line is a circle with a triangle shape piece missing, a lot like a piece of pizza. And so the circle goes along singing this silly song about looking for its missing piece. And in the meantime, it meets worms and beetles and frogs and butterflies land on it and it stops to look at flowers And after a few failed attempts, it does find its missing piece. Only it can't sing anymore. And it starts rolling so fast that it can't stop to look at flowers or talk to frogs or beetles. Things start tumbling so out of control that it sets the piece down, scoots away and starts singing again. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Stephanie. Stephanie Land's work has been featured in the New York Times, the New York Review of Books, the Washington Post, the Guardian, Vox, Salon, and many other outlets. She lives in Missoula, Montana fellow stephanie at stepville.com her first book made hard work low pay and a mother's will to survive a memoir is available starting january 2019 from hachette if you enjoy the stories you hear please rate us on apple music or stitcher leaving us a review and rating really helps get the podcast to more listeners and we want to reach as many people as possible Please rate and review us, and then recommend the Tell Us Something podcast to one person who has never listened to it before. Thank you so much. We have two more stories in this episode. Before we get to them, I want to take a moment to thank our title sponsors. The Bookstore at the University of Montana, a local bookstore serving the students, faculty, and staff of the University of Montana, as well as the Missoula community, montanabookstore.com. Cabinetparts.com. Anyone searching for the best kitchen cabinet hardware at a great price needs to go to CabinetParts.com. CabinetParts.com combines knowledgeable hardware specialists with the best online shopping experience nationwide. CabinetParts.com is the direct source for all of your cabinet hardware needs. The Good Food Store, supporting Western Montana farmers and ranchers for almost 50 years, the Good Food Store supports the local folks creating their own beer, salsa, baked goods, ice cream, and more. Learn more at Goodfoodstore.com. Logjam Presents. Headquartered in Missoula, Montana, Logjam Presents is an independent and privately owned live entertainment company. Logjam Presents is the exclusive operator and promoter of the Kettle House Amphitheater, the Wilma, and the Top Hat Lounge, and Ogren Park. Logjam Presents has created a unique artist and concertgoer experience that is unmatched in the Northwest, logjampresents.com. All right, let's get back to the storytelling. Steve Brester, a retired Missoula police officer, recovers from drug addiction and alcoholism after being caught stealing from the state crime evidence lab. Recovery led him to work towards ending unemployment for Missoula's low income, previously incarcerated and homeless populations. Steve calls his story addiction and second chance.
3: So one of the proudest days of my life was uh, when I got hired at the police department in 1992. Uh, I'd worked really hard to get there and uh, very competitive back then. And for the next 20 years, I served this community with honor and with pride and with professionalism. And my career became who I was. And being a cop is stressful. And a lot of guys deal with it by, you know, some guys run, some guys go to the gym or whatever. I drank. So I'd go to work all day, do my cop thing. Uh, when I got home at night, though, um, I drank, I drank to relieve my stress. And this continued for many, many years. What, about 16 or 17 years into my career, I developed a, a issue with chronic pain in my back. And I did all kinds of, uh, I went to the doctor, did all kinds of uh, imaging and, and tests, and they, they tried different things to fix it. Nothing worked. And back in the day when nothing worked with chronic pain, they treated it with pills. Now. I'm already an alcoholic by the time I got to this point, and the only thing worse than giving an alcoholic a bottle of scotch is 100 Vicodin. And I remember getting that phone call when the nurse said, hey, doctor called in 100 Vicodin for you with three refills. Uh, go start taking these pills right away. And so I did, you know, I mean, I wasn't stupid, I'd been a cop a long time. I'd seen drug addiction and I'd seen all oh, alcoholism, I'd seen them both. But man, I remember when I first took those pills, it was fucking amazing. <laughs> it's like somebody puts a warm blanket around me and I get all fuzzy feeling and my stress and anxiety, they're gone, my pain is gone, I have energy. And I just thought, God, where have these been all my life? And for a long time, I took these pills like I was supposed to, like they were prescribed to me. But that didn't last forever. I do remember the day though that I knew I couldn't drink like I'd been drinking and take these pills like I was taking these pills because I'd been at enough houses where people had died doing just that, whether by accident or on purpose. And the next thing that happened to me is in 2010, I wish I had a good story like I was chasing a bank robber, but I was going home for lunch. <laughs> and I got, in a, I got in a serious car crash. And the result of that car crash was that I got a traumatic brain injury. Now my traumatic brain injury showed up like this, like an absolute memory erasure. I couldn't remember anything in the short term. I could remember you know, who I was and who my kids were and you know where I went to school and all that, but uh, anything within the last week, month, minute, I couldn't remember. And so I was at home trying to recover from this and I remember quite clearly, the brain injury was kind of cool in a weird way. Like I could watch Law and Order and then I could watch Law & Order, and I could watch our. & My wife hated that. (laughs) But the other thing I did was I'd like, oh, it's time to take my pills, I take my pills, my pain pills, right? And I'm on like better ones by now. I'm on like Percocet and et cetera, et cetera. So I take my pills and then 10 minutes later I'd go, oh, I don't think I took my pills, I better go take my pills. I'd watch a and order, and then I'd go, God, it's 1230, did I take my pills at noon? I'd go take more pills. It didn't take long before I went absolutely off the rails in terms of taking these medications like they were prescribed. The other thing that happened as a result of this brain injury was I lost my career. Couldn't be a cop anymore. Couldn't remember what I was doing or who I was or when I was there. And I never planned to lose my career that way. I was a cop, right? I mean, that that's my, was my identity. And when I lost that, I didn't know why I was here anymore, I, right? What am I supposed to do next? What's my purpose in life? I mean, when I went to work every day in law enforcement, you know, I really, truly felt as if I was helping people and sitting on the couch at home was not helping anybody. And I fell into a deep depression. As I go through this uh, process of getting a new prescription each month from my doctor, I take all of my pills, my 90 or 100 pills within four or five days, and then I'm out. And then you're in withdrawal, also known as being dope sick. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of dope sick, but I'm telling you that it's like the flu times 10. Your bones feel like they're gonna explode and you can't, Think straight, you have crushing anxiety and depression and you know, the vomiting and all that that goes along with it. It's debilitating uh, and it takes quite a while to get over. Now, as I'm going through this process where I'm getting my pills, I'm dope sick. I'm getting my pills, I'm dope sick. This is a month and month and month uh, issue. And I'm still wondering what the hell am I supposed to do now that I'm not a cop anymore? And I had the opportunity at one time there was an opening at the Montana State Crime Lab here in Missoula. The crime lab takes evidence in from all over the state, analyzes it, sends it back, and does, uh, does their part of the state, uh, law enforcement part of it. And initially I thought, this is gonna, all right, this is perfect, because if I can get back into this kind of criminal justice area, you know, I'll get this feeling back like I have meaning and, and purpose in my life. And so I took that job, and it was the worst decision I've ever made. Because it wasn't long before I was at the lab, and I'm dope sick, and here comes evidence, right? I'm getting meth, I'm getting heroin, I'm getting marijuana, and I'm getting bags of pills. And one day I went into the back where the drug locker was, where there's no cameras, where nobody else was working, And I remember this like it was yesterday. I know I'm the one that opened that bag, right? But it's like I I was looking down at myself opening this bag of pills. Because that was the antidote to my sickness, at least at the time. And I did that. I did that 69 times while I worked at Crime Lab from uh, 2013 to 2014. Now, I'd been a cop a long time, and it wasn't hard to figure out. Hey, this is not good, right? This is every time I do this, this is a felony. Every time I do this, has the potential of putting me in prison for 10 years. But I didn't care. I didn't even care what my family thought or what they were going through. All I needed, all I wanted, was those pills. And eventually, you know, the lab, you know, figured out. Hey, something's wrong in the evidence section, and I got fired. And when I got fired, the investigation began. Like I said, I knew, um, here I am, I'm a retired cop, and I'm looking at spending 10 years of my life in Deer Lodge. And I can imagine for a normal person, looking at prison time, must be scary as hell. I was absolutely frozen in fear, frozen in fear. And so I was sitting at the house, this is 2016, it was March 12th, 2016. My phone starts blowing up. Hey, what's going on? What's this, what's that, what's the other? Um, And I looked and there was a Missoulian article that said, hey, Steve Rester, retired police lieutenant, stole every bunch of pills from the lab. And I'm like, oh my God, nobody gets it. Nobody knows what this is all about. But I knew what to do. I went down and bought a bottle of scotch and I went home and I started drinking. And then by the time my wife and then my adult son showed up home, to visit that night. I decided I knew what to do next. I went down, I got a load of revolver, and I was trying to get out of the house because I was gonna put it in my mouth, pull the trigger. And I didn't want to do it in the house, make a mess for my wife. My son tackled me and disarmed me and saved my life that night. The, uh, (laughs) thank you. This uh, issue with the criminal offense, uh, I did get 10 years in prison, was suspended. And i got 690 hours of community service and this community service has absolutely blown my life up into something i never could have imagined my purpose and my reason for being here and the reason i get out of bed and go work every day is i get to work at a place called missoula works and i work with thank you i work with i work with homeless people chronicle homeless getting back to work i work with people with Addiction, we get them back to work. People with criminal records, we get them back to work. My life is absolutely full again, and I have a second chance. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Steve. Steve Brester and his wife are native Missoulians graduating from Sentinel and Hellgate, respectively. They both attended University of Montana and have been married for 34 years they have three adult children and two grandchildren. Steve is a retired City of Missoula police officer who served from 1992 to 2012. In our final story, Betsy Mulligan-Dague's work as a peace activist leads her to forge an unlikely friendship with a Vietnam veteran. Together, they move past their differences and see the importance of the work that each of them engages in. Betsy calls her story, My Friend Dan.
4: Anais Nin said that each friend represents in us a world, a world that is quite possibly not born until they arrive. When I started at the Jeanette Rankin Peace Center, I found myself surrounded by the choir, people that thought just like me, and it was comfortable. But I believe that peace requires us to go outside the choir and meet people and perspectives that are different than us and work on learning to understand and appreciate and even learn from those other perspectives. So I set about that work. And one of the groups that I first reached out to was veterans because complicated history between peace activists and veterans who often seeing each other as the enemy, right? Lots of groups never returned my calls. A few didn't wanna be in the same room with me or on the same committee with me. And one group told me I wasn't welcome at their events. But still I kept searching and that search brought me to the Veterans Day ceremonies each November that Dan Gallagher from American Legion Post 101 would organize. When I first started going, I stuck to the edge of the crowd, not really knowing if I was comfortable or welcome or not. But over the years, I edged more toward the middle, started to get a little more comfortable. I recognized some people, they recognized me, and uh, it it felt easier to be there. Dan and I had introduced each other to, to each other, so we knew each other, I knew him. But it wasn't until we were both interviewed for a film about the old Missoula peace sign that we actually began to talk to each other. Now this peace sign stood a big 30 foot by 30 foot board at the top, the very top of of the North Hills overlooking Missoula. (laughs) You know it. It actually was used by the phone company to bounce cell signals down to the Bitterroot, right? (laughs) But some activists from, I think, the north side of Missoula one night decided that it needed a peace sign on it, so they painted a peace sign on it. And the phone company painted over it, and the activists painted the peace sign back, and the Quest painted back over it, and this went on for 18 years. (laughs) I loved that peace sign <laughs> because to me it represented everything that I was working for. It represented the world that I wanted of, of, of tolerance and acceptance and justice. I, it was one of the things that drew me to live in Missoula and I was so proud to be here where this peace sign overlooked my city. So. <laughs> Yes, so it was such a surprise to me to find out how much Dan Gallagher hated that peace sign, (laughs) detested the peace sign. Now in the army, he worked with explosives and he had actually planned out how much C4 (laughs) it would take to blow that peace sign up We could have gone back to our separate worlds and after that interview, not stayed together as friends, but something kept us together. You know, being interviewed for that film, it was interesting that the thing that divided us was actually what got us talking to each other. And we had lots and lots of two-hour lunches at the Uptown Diner in Missoula. I was always early, he was always late, and somehow we met in the middle. I saw the pride that he had following in the footsteps of his father and his brothers and answering the call that JFK had put out to serve his country. And I also saw him trying to make sense of a 40-year Disconnect between that pride and the hatred that he had seen on the faces of anti war protesters when he came back from Vietnam in 1969. I came to see how deeply he cared and loved his fellow veterans and the people of Vietnam, especially one small girl named Thuy, who he continued to carry her picture with him. He hoped that. His time there had been of some help to the people of Vietnam and, and hoped with a great amount of pain that his explosives that he had planted had not harmed her or other children like her. This was a man whose sense of service above self was enormous. He was known as the lunch lady at Loyola where he volunteered gave of his self to his community time and again. And he also was able to see me and see how important the peace sign was to me. Even though he hated it, he saw what it meant to me. He saw that it represented all the things I was working for, the things that were important to me, my values. Over the years, he gave me lots of things that had a peace sign on it, like this bracelet that I I still have and wear. And one day he said to me, you know, your willingness to stand up for what you believe and your work for peace are just as important, just as honorable a way to serve our country as my service in the Army. What an affirming thing for me to hear, how wonderful for me to hear that, what that meant to me for him to say that to me. In 2011, Dan asked me to speak at the Veterans Day ceremony, the same one I used to go to all the time. He jokingly offered me a flak jacket. And I have to tell you, it was probably the coldest day I can remember. And as I stood at the podium and looked out at the sea of uniforms and red, white, and blue, it's like, maybe that flak jacket might be comfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Nevertheless, I I said what I came to say. And I, I said, I'm sorry. I am sorry that many of you were harassed and called names by people protesting the war. And I'm even sorrier that they did it in the name of peace because it didn't make peace, it made division. And I regret that. I looked over and Dan's face was just full of emotion. I still have a thank you note that he wrote me telling me how much those words meant to him and how much he'd waited 40 years to let go of that pain. When I was done and lots of people in the crowd came up to tell me the same thing, how much those words meant to them and how important it was. And I felt like I'd made a connection. I had finally found that connection and I was part of this larger community. In 2016, Dan died. He honored me by listing me as one of his pallbearers to carry his casket to his final resting place. And I was very proud to give that last final gift to my friend, Dan. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Betsy. Betsy Mulligan Daig has a 30-year history as a clinical social worker helping families and individuals address challenges in their lives. She has taught numerous groups to look at ways they can understand the emotions and needs behind communication. Since 2005, she has been the executive director of the Jeanette Rankin Peace Center, where she has continued to focus on ways people can increase their communication skills to become better at peacemaking and conflict resolution believing that our difference will never be as important as the things we have in common. She recently was featured in a full-length documentary, Beyond the Divide, the courage to find common ground, about her efforts to build bridges between peace advocates and veterans. Betsy is a past president of the Missoula Sunrise Rotary Club and currently serves as the chair of the State Peace and Conflict Resolution Committee for Rotary as well as board member of the Waterton Glacier International Peace Park. She's available to speak on peace, peacemaking, conflict resolution, team building, nonviolent communication, women's issues, social activism, the history and importance of Jeanette Rankin, as well as specifics of nonprofit management, fair trade, and earned income. Learn more about Betsy and her work at tellusomething.org, including a link to the film that she and Dan made together. Thanks for listening to the Tell Us Something podcast. Tell Us Something is proud to be fiscally sponsored by Missoula Community Foundation. A 501c3 organization. Missoula Community Foundation has been providing leadership to Missoula nonprofits and inspiring long-term philanthropy in Missoula since 2007. missoulacommunityfoundation.org. Fact and Fiction, where books, authors, ideas, and readers interact. factandfictionbooks.com. Missoula Broadcasting Company, locally owned and operating four stations, The Trail 103.3, Missoula's Quality Rock, and a part of our unique Western Montana community. Featuring local DJs who love Missoula and know their music. Jack FM 105.9, playing what they want. U 104.5 FM, your at-work listening station. And ESPN 102.9, focusing on city, state, and regional sports, giving exposure and insight to teams and athletes in and around Western Montana. Learn more at missoulabroadcasting.com. Enlighten Lab Float Center. Enlightened Lab is a spa featuring sensory deprivation or floating as a wellness therapy. Unplug, reset, and recharge in their state-of-the-art float tanks, or sweat it out in their infrared sauna. Learn more at enlightenlab.com. That's E-N-L-Y-T-E-N-L-A-B.com. Gecko Designs. Visit the Gecko Designs team on North Higgins in Missoula or online at GeckoDesigns.com. Thanks to Cash for Junkers who provided the music for the podcast find them at cashfordrunkersmusic.com. podcast production by me mark moss thank you to everyone who attends the live events those of you who download the podcasts and most especially to the storytellers chris latre stephanie land steve brester and betsy mulligan Degg. we are taking story pitches for the december tell us something live event the theme is did that really happen if you'd like to pitch your story please call 406-203-4683 you can find Tell Us Something on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram. Subscribe to the Tell Us Something podcast using your favorite podcasting app. You can stream all of the stories ever told on the Tell Us Something stage for free at tellussomething.org. Thanks for listening, and remember, your story matters.